0: This time on Poll Hub, when is a national emergency not a national emergency? Maybe when Americans don't buy it. Our new poll has the public's reaction to the Trump national emergency, and it's not real pretty for the president. What does it all mean? Elaine Kamar from the Brookings Institution is here to discuss. Then which 2020 candidates are you following on social media? believe it or not it actually might be a pretty good way to determine who's in the poll position at this very early stage we're checking our twitter you should be too poll hub starts now And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Daffer, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll.
1: And I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Marist Poll.
2: And I'm Lee Mergoff, Director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion.
0: So we did it. He declared a national emergency, the president did, uh, about the uh, crisis at the border, as he calls it. Uh, Americans uh, don't really buy it, though, from our poll. Is that right?
1: No, 58% of Americans actually don't think there is an emergency at the border, and another 61%. Uh, disapprove of the declaration by the president. Uh, They actually, uh, 57% of majority, perceived the president's declaration to actually be a misuse of power. But um, surprise, surprise, this is a partisan issue. No, Um, no, come on, we haven't had one of them lately. No, no, but incredibly, incredibly polarizing. Um, The the, uh, president's uh, Republican base is very strong and supportive. Um, of his declaration of the emergency. In fact, they uh, believe there is a national emergency which requires the building of a border wall. And uh, certainly uh, only 14% of uh, Republicans think that this uh, has been a misuse of his executive power. So there's a very strong consensus uh, among the, the the president's supporters uh, not only for the wall but for the for the urgency uh, of it as well.
2: Yeah but I think the issue I mean if you haven't sold the concept that we need a wall, it's going to be very hard to sell the concept that we need a that's a state, a state of national emergency if we don't have and one. And vice versa. <laughs> and, and so yes, and so for the majority, he's you know he's striking out in the court of public opinion. We may see it go to other courts, but you know this is consistent with you know his campaign on refugees this is what he started with when he came down the escalator way back when at Trump Tower. Uh, he's been doubling down on refugees since with the and during the midterm elections and now Now he seems to be setting the table again for 2020 and we're back at the same point. so I'm not sure how well, he's going to get I'm, beyond his what's a proxy for his base right now.
1: I'm not sure it's a surprise that Democrats are so strongly against it, but I do think that it is um, somewhat of a surprise how strongly Independents align mm. uh, with the with the Democrats. With Democrats. Nearly two thirds of Independents are agreeing um, with the Democrats that in fact this is this is not uh, the way to go. Also, I thought it was very interesting, uh, and Jay, you may want to weigh on on this too, the fact that people really think that the declaration of a national emergency should be legally challenged.
0: Well, that and that they see it as an abuse of power. I think these are the kinds of words that when you start seeing these in polls, people agreeing with them, they're Watergate-like words. And I'm not using that to drop Watergate, you know, oh, another Watergate. But abuse of executive power and and challenging these things in courts, these, these are the kind, this is the kind of language that I think begins to get at Uh, The way a majority of Americans, you see it in this poll and in others, begin to to see this president. And when you look at the reaction that registered voters had in our poll to the question, does this make you less likely to vote for him in 2020, that's 54%. 54% say, yeah, this action, I'm less likely to vote for him. He's already underwater. This can't help.
2: OK, we're very pleased to bring into the discussion Elaine Kamark, uh founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management and a senior fellow at Brookings and uh, has also been a lecturer at Harvard for many years. Um, I was going to say that's the other school in Cambridge that I went to. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> I tried many times again to get into Harvard and never successfully. But does, so you should be very proud doesn't, of that distinction. Doesn't seem to have stopped you, Lee. No, that's true. Also, I've tried. Yeah. I've tried. <laughs> um, anyway, so we're very happy to have you, and uh, of course, we're we're very interested in your views on this whole national emergency. you you've uh, you've uh, written many books and articles on the topic, and one of the comments that jumped out at us is that your view that national emergencies are, well, they really are in the eye of the beholder. And tell us a little bit about the the scope of different things that have
3: occurred. There's been claims and counterclaims as to what's going on. Well, clearly, in the case of this president, okay, he views this as a national emergency. And his, he has convinced his supporters that this is a national emergency. So, in his eyes, and in the eyes of his supporters, this is obviously a national emergency. And of course, and your poll uh, kind of su- supports that conclusion
2: for, for his um, base. Yeah,
3: yeah, his his base supports that. Now, the problem is nobody else nobody else supports that, and nobody else believes that. Um, in the past. Frankly, the question of whether or not something was an emergency has not been an issue. So this is the first time that the national emergency is an emergency in the eyes of the president, but not in the eyes of Congress, not even in, not even in the eyes of his supporters. In Congress, um, and we will see whether or not it's an emergency in the eyes of the court. Usually, if you look through these other emergencies in the past, mm-hmm. they tend—they tend to have been unquestioned, with one big exception, which is Harry Truman's emergency,
2: which was. Uh- for, for, for the lack of history buffs. In yes, the
3: 1940, 1949, I believe. Okay. Uh, someone may correct me if I've got the year wrong. Um, there was a st- a strike, threatened strike at a at the steel plants, and um, Truman intervened, claiming that this would be a national emergency because steel was needed to produce weapons for the Korean War. The Supreme Court struck it down. Mm-hmm and said no that was a misuse of presidential power. Now that's the big supreme court case that's hanging out there that if if and when and i suspect it'll be sooner rather than later this situation goes to the supreme court they'll all go back and they'll look at this one and try to see what if anything what if any guidance they can get from that case uh, many 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 years ago. In the interim, however, um, you know, most people have tended to agree with whichever president was declaring whichever emergency. Mm-hmm. A lot of the emergencies are sanctions on foreign countries who've done something that we don't like. And that's, that's what a whole bunch of them are. Uh, this is quite unusual, and it's why I say he, he has shifted the entire debate to make an emergency in the eye of the beholder. So what you're what you're saying is that in the past we have mostly seen
1: uh, emergencies declared where there's a consensus there's a consensus between the congress and the president and also within public opinion. So how does how does how does this though fit into the whole Trump ethos? The this declaration how is it also
3: different? Well, it's 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 of a piece with Trump's um, M.O., which is to fight and fight and fight and fight. And if you lose a battle once, you look for another battleground to fight. Uh, The guy doesn't know any other mode of operation other than fighting. And so he clearly lost with his big gambit, which was to shut down the government over this issue, Uh, the Democrats wouldn't budge. The Republicans in the Congress were way less than enthusiastic about this whole thing. Um, they They let it go on for 35 days, which was about 34 days too long. And um, he had to back down in the end. And when he backed down, he got less money than he'd originally put into his budget. so it was it was a loss all the way around. but isn't this also a secret to
1: Trump's success? In other words, keeping you know, keeping his base strong, keeping his base uh, connected uh, to what is going on. and um, it, it has certainly served him well, not only in uh, winning the presidency in 2016, but certainly, uh, you know, through his, you know, through his administration. He he's certainly um, he's remained steady in terms of um, popularity. He's not, certainly not the most uh, popular of presidents, but that 40 percent has stuck with him.
3: Well, but that's 40%. I I would say quite the opposite, that this tactic of playing only to his base has been, frankly, disastrous. Uh, he lost the House of Representatives. He has one major piece of legislation to his name, which any Republican president would have gotten, the tax, the tax bill. And he is his, his support among independents has eroded substantially. Um, and so if, I think even in your own poll here, independents don't support the national emergency at the border. Um, and in fact, 40% doesn't cut it in a a midterm election, as we saw, and it doesn't cut it in a a presidential election. Elaine, Um, what do you
0: think are the chances that this um, forces Congress to take back some power that a lot of scholars believe and you may include yourself in that, uh, yeah. that Congress has ceded authority to, to the unitary executive, to the president, and made the president kind of a, a king-like figure. And if you're the president, you know, of course you're going to take it. If, sure. they give, if they give you a piece of the rope, you're going to pull the the rope over the <laughs> line.
3: Yeah, I, I do believe that we're at the beginning of an era of congressional power um, and that we've already seen that in their actions on the Russian sanctions early on in the administration, where they passed it by veto-proof majorities. You saw it in the resolution against uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen and our support for for the Saudis. Um, You're you're seeing it a lot in foreign policy, especially. Um, I think this particular issue, the Republicans are a little more scared than they are in foreign policy issues, just because this is an issue that because it... It unifies their base, could cause them problems in the primaries. So I think on this one they're a little bit more in lockstep with the president. But you know, nonetheless, um, these uh, the the Congress has actually stood up to the president, and I think they're going to keep standing up to him because as he gets painted into a corner by his various legal troubles. Uh, he's getting uh, worse and worse and more and more erratic.
2: Yeah, as we saw in our poll, the public thinks this should end up in the court's... Um, President Trump clearly, when he had his discussion with the press the other day uh, yeah. outdoors, uh, when he did his little song about it's first, it's going to go here, then it's going to go there, then it's <laughs> going to go the yeah. Court, and I'll get a fair, yeah. i not going to fare whatever. I will not do the imitation, however. Right. Um, you, you just and tried. please don't <laughs> and, and please
1: don't sing, please. <laughs> Don't, don't, sing. don't <laughs> sing. You can tell. I,
2: you can tell. I brought out the best <laughs> in, in my clubber. my co-anchors here. Um, but anyway, so t- talk a little bit about this process that we're going to. Uh, I forget the movie. Was it all about? Eve will be in for a bumpy ride, or was it yeah. something well, like that? W- is that what we're two- in
3: for? Oh, we are definitely. Uh, there are going to be lawsuits galore. Um, I am. I have a kind of minority opinion on this. I think it is such a large-scale constitutional issue that I. my guess is that the Supreme Court will take it up sooner rather than later, that it will not be years and years and years of litigation that it'll happen rather quickly just because of the magnitude of the constitutional issues at stake. And those are whether or not a president can act unilaterally on an issue that Congress has specifically rejected. Now, it, it would be one thing that we would be more in a gray area if Congress had not had an appropriations bill with money for the wall, if they hadn't acted on passing that bill, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If it had never come up in Congress, if this was like a brand new thing, then I think you'd be a more gray area. But Congress has specifically said, no, we do not want to appropriate the amount of money he wants for this wall. We're going to appropriate $1.3 billion. That's it. And um, for him to overrule that by declaring a national emergency... I mean, if that doesn't set up a a separation of powers... Um, Issue. I don't know what does.
0: I think that's what we're looking at as well. We'll keep an eye on that. The court does look to be uh, likely to rule quite soon. Elaine Kamar, founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. That's a mouthful to to get through. Yeah, I know it sure
3: is. (laughs) Thank, thank. I can can only
2: imagine what her business card looks like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on with us and uh, helping us dissect this uh, this tricky issue. We appreciate it.
3: Uh, well, thank you for having me, and, and good to talk to you all. Well, we can't go a week without mentioning
1: 2020 and the Democratic candidates who are jumping into the, to the fray, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly. This week, we had uh, Bernie Sanders uh, throwing his hat into the, into the proverbial Democratic primary ring. Uh, and Jay, you had a really interesting take on how to assess the 2020 field.
0: Yeah, well, it's not my take, per se. We did it with in a class on Monday night uh, in talking to um, a bunch of students, Lee. Um... There, if you look at how the candidates uh, line up in social media, and there's a bunch of different ways to do that, some of the metrics used in social media, like how many likes did you get, are meaningless. And the marketing industry who live and die by social media you know, uh, metrics will tell you they're, they're meaningless. And, but certainly, uh, and
1: certainly when you see some of the give and take on social media, that's not exactly reflective of the, you know, what people think as a whole.
0: Right, But it's about the it, – often the, that metric is the number of them, so the, the flow of them. Does somebody have more uh, interactions than the other? But what I thought was interesting is to look at the number of followers. And, and there's three big social media platforms that uh, that are worth looking at, um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And so what we did was we looked at the, the current – most of the 20 – 20 uh, people who are running so far at least do have enough social media following to show up on a chart, <laughs> and looked at the number of Facebook followers they have, Twitter followers, and Instagram followers. And what stood out was that that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are well out ahead of everybody else in the total number of followers they have, mm-hmm. followed by – about half as many, like uh, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and Cory Booker, and then much further behind Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and also better. And
1: is this cumulative for all platforms? Yeah. And, it
0: was, and it was for all three platforms combined. So why is Sanders and Elizabeth Warren so far ahead? Good question. Well, why
2: are they, Jake?
0: Right, it's it's name recognition, right? They've been out there longer, and, and they have they have more followers because they've been doing. Which longer, we've especially. seen in our polling, exactly tracks pretty closely. It tracks close to the but polling, it varies
2: with different social media,
0: but it does, and that's that's the other thing. So let me, let me say about Biden and Booker and and Kamala Harris, we had looked at at um, the number of interactions back in the fall, from the fall to this point in time. And Kamala Harris had actually is more interactions than almost any other candidate, and you've got to think some of that has to do with what happened at the Supreme Court hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. She was very, very passionate. In October, Cory Booker sure. had a lot of mentions too, and he got a lot of attention mm-hmm. as well. And those two having that kind of platform seemed to have elevated them to a different level than some of the other folks. Uh, although I was ahead.
2: interested that Amy Klobuchar, who was also sitting at that same uh, hearing did not kind of get the social media bounce, and and maybe it's because Minnesota isn't like
0: the East Coast or the West Coast. I'm just speculating, but in that case, remember that Kamala Harris represents a state that represents 10% of the U.S. population, practically, California, right? And Cory Booker is in the two two of the five biggest media markets in America. He represents New Jersey, which is Philadelphia and New York. Those Mm -hmm. are two of the five biggest media markets. So they start with a pretty big leg up, over Amy on this Senate panel when they're they're questioning yep. people, but the types of platforms—it's a good point uh, that, that you raise. Bernie Sanders is way ahead on Twitter, but Elizabeth Warren has four times the number of followers that Bernie has on Facebook. So, is that a distinction without a difference, or is there something? Meaningful? Well,
1: these demog- I mean, these these platforms have very different demographics. For instance, you, you would probably look far and wide for people over 50 who have an Instagram account. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and each of them, although they are getting older because Facebook is, I think, the oldest of the, of the three, oh, yeah. three yeah. platforms, uh, probably also has the oldest demographic.
0: Right. So when you're looking at, at, at uh, Elizabeth Warren with all these Facebook followers – You're saying, well, she has so many more Facebook followers than Bernie Sanders. Well, actually, Bernie... And you go, but Bernie Sanders is so old. Yeah, but his supporters aren't,
2: right? He doesn't
0: actually appeal. Bernie Sanders doesn't have this wide appeal to people over 50. At least that's what we saw in 2016. But uh, Elizabeth Warren certainly does. She's shown that in the the early
2: polling. What I found really interesting in this approach that you took in in class, uh, Jay, and also just as we're talking about it now, is what are we going to be talking about right now that makes sense? Uh, You know, are the toss-ups... meaningful well their name recognition well what if we just ask about favorable and favorable well it's a little early for all that well we know that the whole social media thing may be the kind of like hidden way into this and it certainly was in 2016 2018 important and, and now maybe as well. What happened when you put President Trump into this equation
0: Well that's the thing is that we so we put this chart up uh, and it's a it's a, a bar chart a horizontal bar chart so there's all these lines going across the page and very impressive. You know, Bernie Sanders at twice the number of Joe Biden and Booker. And then I needed to put Trump on. Well, the problem is that Trump's combined Facebook and Twitter following, he has no Instagram following, uh, is 80-some-odd um, million. Uh, Bernie Sanders combined is 12 million. So you, you start to get the picture. I had to shrink down the Democratic Party to the point where it's barely visible compared to Donald Trump's super, super, super long line. And, and that just goes to show that I think... Not that the Democrats don't stand a chance or that social media shows that the Democrats are way behind. It does show that that the, that social media is an interesting metric to mm-hmm. look at, but it's not dispositive. It doesn't necessarily tell you anything. I do think that these early numbers for Democrats do tell you where some enthusiasm is, though, because this isn't just people who are liking. They're actually going to the trouble of following and then staying – following with these candidates and and that takes a little more commitment than simply a thumbs up or. and it'll be
1: interesting to check this out down the road
0: yeah we'll keep monitoring it and certainly these social media followings will grow as the candidates uh, you know uh, positions in the polls grow but the other thing that'll be interesting to watch and we're going to keep an eye on it because we're obviously looking at the polls but we're also looking at social media is where do those lines not follow where is a candidate not going up in the polls yet, but has a really big increase in social media.
2: If that happens, which is the leading indicator, is that a
0: is Yeah, is it? Is it, or yeah. does it, or is it simply, yeah, they're really they, they do nice pictures and, on Instagram, it,
2: but they ain't going to be present? Yeah, and are some some of these candidates, campaign strategists, are saying, well, let's do social media big time, and they're neglecting other aspects of, of, you know, there's still other parts that really count, like debates and TV ads and all kinds of things that have gone on before. So that's what makes 2020 just so interesting.
0: And I think we're going to keep talking about it. For this edition of Poll Hub, that's going to do it. Poll Hub's a production of the Marist Poll here at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer and Kenny Marples is our editor.
2: And we'd also like to thank, as we do each week, the Roper Center Archive at Cornell University, who has put together a new map uh, in the archive, which you can look at, and it talks about... Internationally, the number of studies that they have all around the world. Uh, it shows that you can access the 13,000 ones in the United States, but also 100 other countries included in the Roper archives. So it's yeah, a it's big a cool, deal.
1: It's a cool website they, a that deal. they have redone for uh, polling geeks uh, everywhere. And speaking of social media, please send your comments or questions to us at pollhub at marist.edu or reach out uh, at marist. Uh, poll on Twitter or Maris poll on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe.